My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer America. I'll be one of my friends. Just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate. Teach. Call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at you, Kramer. Look, we, we can spend the whole day arguing about whether Netflix still counts as a growth stock after that not-so-hot forecast. Oh, it's a fun parlor game. We can talk about the meme stocks endlessly, like AMC, the troubled movie theater chain that just gave CEO Adam Aaron the chairman job, too. Smart move. He's done an incredible job tapping the Robin Hoodie shareholder base for capital that AMC needed to stay alive. But after just an incredibly swell day for the Bulls, Dow gaining 286 points, ah. S&P climbing 0.82%, NASDAQ jumping 0.92%, I want to tip my hat to a company that's doing everything right and show you exactly what doing it right means in this market. And I am talking about Chipotle. Ah which surged 11.5% today on a fabulous quarter that shows you why individual stock picking still matters and why it's easier than most experts would have you believe. We know Chipotle was gettable because I've been telling you it was headed to $2,000 for the last 600-odd points. It closed at $1,755, up $181. At this pace, it won't take long to hit my price target. Before I get into Chipotle, though, let me explain why this market can be so confusing. I mentioned Netflix a second ago because I heard endless chatter today about whether their growth story has run its course. This is something I take seriously. After all, we're the ones who coined FANG, the acronym for Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. But you know what? If you find yourself debating whether something's a growth company, it probably isn't much of one anymore. I think Netflix is a terrific business subscriber. But the stock only started going higher last night when management mentioned they're working on, on having some gaming stuff. I mean, then, then they started preaching the virtues of interactive entertainment. Uh, well, I, what I want from Netflix is content, good content. If they don't have enough good content to get lots of new subscribers around the world, that's a big issue. The fact that they're buying back stock is of no interest to me. I want sign-ups, global sign-ups. I don't want pull-throughs as in the pandemic pull-through subscriptions last year. I don't want to hear about gigantic runways when the runways are clogged with planes from HBO and Disney. I just want the Netflix of old, where the conference calls were fun and jovial. The kingpins of entertainment kicked around which of their shows were the favorites this time around. I used to read the Netflix call to my wife because I wanted to persuade her to watch the shows recommended by the CEO, Reed Hastings. Not this time. This time I found myself thinking, oh, man, I got to finish this conference call. I mean, there's another entertainment company. Uh, so does that mean it's time to rip the end out of Fang and replace it with something that sounds a lot less poetic? Maybe Fang or Famag? I still can't go there yet. I want to see what Netflix's slate of content looks like when production is no longer hampered by COVID. But after last night, you, know, you need to understand, when people say Netflix growth status is debatable, that means the debate is over. company currently lacks the growth to be a member in good standing of FANG. How about the meme stocks? Oh, these people want to buy new or near penny stocks of companies that might never make a dime that you've never heard of, or older companies where they can crush the short sellers, which is what they really are about. And that's why the news from meme stock poster child AMC that Adam Aaron's being promoted from CEO to chairman and CEO passes as a big deal. 
I think the Wall Street bets crowd fundamentally misunderstands the nature of AMC's success story. Aaron kept his company alive by selling them stock at inflated prices, allowing his theater chain to outlast the pandemic. I say give me a break. I am not interested in zero-sum situations like AMC. I am interested in companies with magnificent sales and earnings, like Chipotle. Okay, so what happened last night that catapulted this stock? This stock up more than 11% in a single session. Well, takeover maybe? Uh, uh, some tremendous upgrades? What, what, what? How about culture? Culture, that's what happened. This company has an extraordinary culture of customer-centric innovation, and that culture has been turbocharged since they hired Brian Nickel as CEO when Chipotle's stock was languishing in the 200s after a series of health scares. Again, it's in the 1700s now. We always hear about these executives who say a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. You know, most of the time they're just blowing smoke. Not Chipotle. Chipotle delivered. When the pandemic hit, management recognized they had to use every form of technology to make the company as profitable as possible. Everything from the best digital ordering system to the creation of their own bots that answer frequently asked questions in order to free up staff, make great food. They recognized that they could do uh, enough delivery through DoorDash to get the food when you need it. They understand that drive throughs we call them Chipotle's, could be a major source of growth thanks to COVID, and it sure was. In the old days, Chipotle restaurants routinely did 2.5 million volume. Uh, that's an incredible number. Amazing versus almost every other chain. But now, because of what they learned about technology, including how to build loyalty, they have 23 million members up from nothing two years ago. And they think that $3 million per store is now doable. That's insane. Yes, they learned that much and paid them $3 million. That's, it's inconceivable that they can do it, but they're going to do it. You often hear that no one can find workers in the service industries. How many times do you hear that? Oh, supply chain, can't find workers, can't find workers. How about this? Maybe they don't know how to find them. Maybe they don't know how to look for them. Or maybe they're just cheap and stupid. Not Chipotle. As Nickel told us in the conference call, their coast-to-coast career day event last week allowed them to hire thousands of additional team members. Thousands. Sure, they have some inflation like everyone else, including wages that moved to $15 an hour, but they can easily pass that on to the consumer with a 3.5 to 4% price price hike. I mean, did you really notice that on your bowl? I didn't. But the most important thing is that unlike nearly every company I follow, Chipotle held on to its digital gains after the great reopening. Was it the cauliflower rice? The lifestyle bowls? The burritos and Bitcoin promotion? (laughs) Nah, it was the whole shooting match. It can earn $7.46 when Wall Street was only looking for $6.49. A company that could easily more than double its domestic store count while vastly increasing the profits per store. Uh, this is a company that's not speaking authentic Silicon Valley gibberish when it says it's evolved into, and I quote, a real food-focused digital lifestyle brand. The bottom line, go ahead, debate Netflix's growth or lack thereof. Ponder how the heck AMC could be worth more than $21 billion, even as it fights for survival by taxing its Robin Hoodie shareholders. But I think you'd be better off buying a chicken burrito and a share of Chipotle. Renee in Georgia, Renee. Booyah, Kramer. Booyah. Coming at you from Atlanta. Woo. Uh, love your show. My husband and I watch you every day, along with our friends at 444 and Tribeca. Oh, that's uh, terrific. Thank question. you. Yeah, we love you. Uh, My question is about Upwork. We love this company. I'm also a customer on the platform on occasion. So I was an early adopter, and I bought Upwork at 21. Today it's over 55. I've held my position all this time. I want to know if I should sell into the strength of the last few days and trim my position or hold. What do you think? 
I have tremendous admiration for Hayden Brown. She does a great job. You hold on to that stock. They know what they're doing. They got horse sense. Can I go to Adam in Colorado, please, Adam? Big booyah to the chill man. Thanks for teaching us young investors how to give it. All right. The young investors are here. This is where they are. And they're not just fighting the shorts. They're trying to find longs. How can I help you? Amen. I bought a speculative position in Moderna at $29. Then I sold my cost basis at an average of 133 There are signs that the J&J vaccine is less effective against the Delta variant, and the use of Moderna booster shots could be on the way. Does this stock have enough tailwind to keep moving, or am I to let this stock keep running? No, again, no. Jim? I often think, uh, you know, bulls make money. We know that. Bears make money. But pigs... <laughs> That said, I think Moderna's targeted cancer vaccines that are in, the, in that are in play will make it so that the billions it's making right now will look like, well, I don't want to say nothing because, boy, this company's making a ton of money. But I think that the cancer vaccines are for real. And these guys are real smart guys. Can I go to Santo in my home state of Pennsylvania? Santo. Yeah. Berks County. Booyah, Jim. Oh, nice. Reading Booyah back at you, partner. What's up? With earnings date coming and a recent sell-off in the last two weeks, my companies I bought, Lemonade at $80 a share and Sprinkler at $19 a share. Should I be concerned of the sell-off or should I continue to hold? Buy more. They've already or no, no, they, they've come down enough. They've come down enough. You do not need to worry. I think you're fine. Don't buy any more. All right. Do you smell that? Is that the sweet smell of success at Chipotle? The company is firing on all cylinders and it's got a long runway for growth without a lot of planes competing with it. Oh man, tonight, it's a healthcare platform used by more than 80% of U.S. doctors. So should you consider investment in the recently public Doximity that you probably never heard of? You will tonight. I'm giving the newly minted company a proper exam. Then after the turbulence of the last few days, wonder where the market could be headed. Well, we got to go off the charts to find out. Salesforce's Mark Benioff certainly hasn't been slacking off. He joins me tonight following the closing of the company's Slack acquisition. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I got a new one for you. Even though the market has rebounded hard from its lows on Monday, if there's one thing that can still stop this bull in its tracks... It's the endless flood of IPOs that just keep hammering us with a massive amount of supply. Sell, sell, sell. Well, it is a market. All markets are governed by supply and demand. Get too much supply, prices go down. Sell, 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 sell. And that's Economics 101, isn't it? So I hate the fact that the IPOs simply won't stop, including an obscene number of them scheduled for this week. 19, for heaven's sake! Worse, many of these deals are absolute garbage. They know nothing! Because we're in the point in the deal cycle where the brokers will try to sell you anything. They're just trying to cash in 
before too many investors get burned and the demand dries up. But, and and this, this is a huge but, not all these new listings are actually junk. I found one. I found one, but you gotta know, I found a good one. It's called Doximity, D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. I know it sounds stupid, but it's not. Listen to me. This is basically a social network for doctors. LinkedIn for MDs a place where medical professionals can exchange ideas. At the same time, they have a bunch of cloud-based tools that help doctors conduct day-to-day tasks, simple with hiring, contacting patients, even telemedicine. More importantly, because Doximity is the dominant player in the category, it's become the ideal platform for advertisers that are trying to market their products to the medical community. And there's a lot of money in pitching new drugs to doctors. Now, Doximity came public nearly a month ago. Very well-received offering, one of the few. Stock price at 26, open at 41, before jumping to the mid-60s at its peak a week later. Since then, it's been a bit of a wild trader, first falling to the mid-40s. Ooh, good chance there. Then bouncing back to the mid-50s this week as the quiet period ended and a bunch of analysts initiated coverage. Oh, the buys. I mean, geez, the research in this is what caught, caught my eyes. Geez, everybody loves this thing. I think Doximity does have a great story, but at these levels, it's got a little rich. That's why I recommend putting it on your shopping list and waiting for a nice pullback before you do some buying. Why do I like this one so much? Okay, when I say these guys have the dominant social network for medical professionals, I meant their network contains over 80% of all physicians in the United States. They're bigger than the American Medical Association. This is a terrific niche with very deep pockets. Lots of small business owners... Okay, doctors, right? Who need to buy all sorts of things for their practices. Total addressable market, let's see. In America, we spend $4 trillion on healthcare every year. 73% of that is spending, uh, that spending is directed by doctors. And Doximity helps companies, especially drug companies, market to those people. $4 trillion, Doximity, Salesforce, you got it. Doximity has only been around for 11 years, so I think it says a lot that it's already had such widespread adoption among doctors. Normally, this is not a group that eagerly embraces new technology, at least not for back-office stuff. The federal government had to spend billions of dollars over the last 20 years just to convince doctors to use electronic medical records. But apparently, they do like Doximity. And it's not just the social network aspect. Doximity's created a suite of mobile software that makes it uh, easier for doctors to operate when they're not in the office, which is often. Lots of little things like sending and receiving electronic faxes from your phone or calling patients. Get this. This is one of the favorite features. Calling patients from your cell phone while displaying your office number rather than your personal number. Some patients would call their doctors endlessly if they had those cell phone numbers. I think it's a very smart business model. They build out a big social network for medical professionals. Then they keep adding new tools to the platform and make life easier for their users. Plus, the social network side gives them a treasure trove of valuable data on what the industry cares about. How about the financials? This, this is one of the reasons, again, why I'm drawn to this. Unlike so many recent software IPOs, Doximity's got two things that I really like. High revenue growth and profitability. Two great tastes that taste great together. In the latest fiscal year, the company had 78% revenue growth, a huge acceleration from just 35% growth the year before. But a lot of that was due to the pandemic. Doximity made the brilliant call to launch a telemedicine business at the beginning of last year, which was terrific timing because COVID obviously made that offering a lot more attractive. That means the growth will likely decelerate, though, now that we've lapped the telemedicine rollout. 
The analysts started rolling out coverage on Doximity this week. And on average, they're looking for 34% sales growth in the current fiscal year, followed by 31% next year. Sounds pretty reasonable, although I think that number is beatable. Even more impressive, not only is Doximity profitable, it's been profitable for years. And the margins keep expanding rapidly. You know I tell you that's what people want to see, expanding gross margins. The balance sheet's excellent. Cash flows are strong. How many companies that have come public the spate of deals can call themselves profitable with pristine balance sheets? I can probably count them on my fingers at best. Uh, Maybe a couple of toes in there, too. Now, this is partially a cloud-based software company, so you've got some industry-specific metrics here, too. The net revenue retention rate tells you whether existing customers are leaving the platform or spending more money on it. Last year, Doximity's net revenue retention rate was up 153%, meaning existing customers spent 53% more than they did the previous year. Wow! Meanwhile, the number of customers spending more than 100 grand grew from 141 to 200. In short, Doximity's got fabulous fundamentals. I think it's a very good company, but I do worry that the whole IPO class of 2021 will collapse under the weight of so many crummy listings that are coming right now. I see them. I don't like them. So what will happen? Well, it'll get dragged down. Dragged down, but that's when you need to pounce. Bye, bye, bye! Because the earnings are still small, you can't really use them for valuation. And when you use a price-to-sales multiple, it's pretty nosebleed. With a $10 billion market cap, Doximity's trading at more than 35 times this year's sales. 27 times next year's sales. That's substantially more expensive than something like Viva Systems. Really good. Another cloud-based software play for the healthcare industry trades at 23 times next year's sales. However, Doximity's growing faster than Viva, so it will certainly deserve some kind of premium. I usually don't recommend stocks this expensive, but, you know, profit... Great market. The valuation is not insane. It's just extended. Then there's the other problem with the stock. When Doximity came public a month ago, they did what I call, what I call a sliver deal. That means they only sold a small chunk of stock, just 13% of the shares outstanding, in the expectation that a lock of shares would produce a big spike, and that's exactly what happened. However, when the lockup on insider selling expires near the end of the year, you have to expect Doximity to get hit, right? It might end up selling off from those levels. Hey, maybe that's where you want to wait. That's okay. Patience. No hurry to pull the trigger. If you really want it soon, you got my blessing to put on a small position when it's trading less than 25 times next year's sales, meaning the moment it goes below 51. Remember, it just did that. Outrageous valuation. But all the cloud stocks with fast growth and actual profits have outrageous valuations. That's just the lay of the land. The bottom line, Doximity's got an exciting story. But like so many of the best recent IPOs, the stock is very expensive. And in five months, it could get hit with a wave of insider selling when that lockup expiration occurs. I think it's worth buying on any real weakness. But please, leave room to buy more on the way down. This one is a keeper. Stick with Kramer. Coming up, Jeff Bezos took one small step from that. Can Amazon take one giant leap for your portfolio? Kramer defies gravity off the charts. Next. After the extreme turbulence of the last few days, how do we take our bearings and figure out where the market's headed? At moments like this, you know what? I'm always telling you, please take your emotions out of the equation. Check them at the door. Adopt a more empirical, more quantitative approach. So tonight we're going off the charts with one of my absolute favorites. We're going to go off the charts with Carolyn Broden. She's that brilliant technician who runs the FibonacciQueen.com website. Also, happens to be my colleague who writes at RealMoney.com. And man. 
She has got some great calls that she's done in the last year. I checked them all before I did this piece. When we spoke to her in late April, she warned that the S&P 500 was headed for a severe short-term sell-off. Told us she expected to bottom around 4,000. Sure enough, a week and a half later, the S&P collapsed. Wall Street freaked out about inflation, and it ultimately bottomed at 4,056. In short, Broden's got just an unbelievable track record of anticipating swings in the broader market. So what is her assessment right now? First, I want you to take a look at the daily chart of the S&P 500. Now, remember, Broad's methodology involves measuring past swings in a given security and then running them through what's known as the prism of Fibonacci ratios, a pattern that repeats itself endlessly in nature and for some reason also does show up in the stock market. She can run the same analysis on the y-axis price or the x-axis time. Now, Broden notes that the S&P had a confluence of these Fibonacci time cycles at the most recent high last week. Okay? She had five different time cycles uh, showing up here, which often signals that something's about to change its trajectory. Given that the market was trading straight up into this time window, she said you had to anticipate a possible reversal of the rally. Sure enough, the S&P peaked exactly a week ago, just as she said, and that was followed by a hideous decline. Great deal of the damage coming just earlier this week, Monday. So now that the S&Ps rebounded from these lows, we got to ask, what's next? Check out this new markup of the daily chart. Broden points out that we've got a pretty clear pattern here when it comes to corrections. Very often this year, the S&P will pull back pretty hard, but it only lasts for three trading days from the last new high. So look at this. It's pretty interesting. Notice how we peaked last Wednesday and then hit the lows on Monday. All right, that's just what happened right there. Exactly three days. We saw the exact same kind of short correction right here in June, okay? Then we got two of them in May, one in March, and then we got this one in January. So Broden's pretty confident that this pattern has already repeated itself. One, two, three, four, five, six. This is some year, isn't it? 2021 is going to be known as the three-day down. If we'd been down yesterday, that would have been another story, but we came right back. To her, that means the meltdown is probably over. At the same time, she points out that the decline from last Wednesday to this Monday was pretty similar to a few other recent declines in terms of price. Another sign that the carnage is over and the uptrend, well, it's back on. As long as the S&P can hold above its Monday low at 4,233, the red line, which are already down more than 100 points from here, if it really takes really gets hit. Broden thinks we're in good shape. However, there's still a few hurdles she wants to see this market to clear. The S&P had a ceiling resistance around 4337 that we blew through today. That would have been right around here, and we just went right through it. Uh, there's another ceiling at 4359, the blue line, uh, that we reached today. See, we hit that, and we stopped. Uh, we didn't clear it. If we stall out here and fail to break through the resistance, then Broden says we ought to be ready for a possible breakdown. Understood. However, get this. If the S&P can break out above this level, the one that we closed at tonight, then Broden says it could be smooth sailing to her next upside target, 4437. That would represent a 127% extension of a previous major swing. That's an important Fibonacci level where trends sometimes exhaust themselves. Assuming the S&P clears that level, too, then the next obvious stop is 4492. That represents a 161.8% Fibonacci extension. That's another one of these levels that repeats itself constantly. Taking a long-term perspective, Broden remains pretty confident in the S&P 500's current uptrend. What would make her less confident? Well, if we get another pullback for, that lasts for more than four trading days from a new high, that would break this pattern of extremely short dips that have really, really kind of, it, it, it's been, you know, when you look at it, you realize this is really 2021, isn't it? You know, a couple of times we get here and people start freaking out every single time. 
Freak out, freak out, freak out. That's what it's about. In that case, she would be a lot more concerned about the possibility of a larger downside correction. But for now, that hasn't happened, and the future looks bright, which chives with what we've seen in earnings season. Okay. So how do we play it? How about an individual stock if you're not an S&P 500 enthusiast? How about Amazon? The setup is very similar to what we just saw from the S&P 500. Check out the daily chart. Right now, Amazon's got a cluster of Fibonacci timing cycles coming due. The maker think the stock's likely to hit bottom at some point this week. Not bad. Meanwhile, the stock's been holding above its key floor of support, 3490-3508, down roughly 80 bucks from here. As long as Amazon doesn't break down below that floor, Broden could see the stock heading for its next significant resistance level. That would be 3847, up more than 250 points from here. Of course, we get a sharp pullback in the floor of support collapses and all bets are off, but that's not the way we're thinking. But for now, the bottom line is that the charts as interpreted by Carolyn Baroden suggest that the S&P 500 is done getting slammed with more upside ahead and that Amazon's ready for a comeback. Maybe the best stock to play if you agree with her. As for me, regular viewers know that I share Baroden's positivity on the market in general and Amazon in particular, especially now that the recent shakeout has wrenched so many weak hands out of the market. Oh, by the way, I have some things to say about the, the weak hands. Good riddance. Ryan in Michigan. Ryan. Jim, I am a Action Alerts Plus member. Thank did you, you. Like this? Did you like the talk today? I did very much. Thank you. That opening incident where I talked about how embarrassing it was when people expressed I thought it was fun. How can I help? For a 5, 10, 20-year outlook in my Roth IRA and the exponential rise in the need for semiconductor chips for EVs, what do you think of Micron long-term? Okay, Micron long-term is a new company versus the days in 1990s when it collapsed. It is no longer boom-bust. All that said, if you want a longer-term chart, well, you know, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you to AMD because that's about to close the deal with Xilinx, and that's the one I like more than Micron. Now, okay, listen, if the market's whipsaw action is making you dizzy, I got some good news. The charts are signaling upside for the S&P. Individual stocks, Amazon could be poised to soar more than 250 points from here. I'll take it. Watch more Mad Money Head, including my exclusive with Salesforce. With news that it's officially acquired Slack, uh, wondering what it means for the future of work? I got the CEO. Then with airlines reporting earnings, is it clear skies ahead for the sector? I'm taking a look back at what got us to this moment. It's a little surprising. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. nearly eight months of work, today Salesforce finally closed on its $27.7 billion takeover of Slack Technologies. Remember WORK? The online collaboration powerhouse. I always describe Salesforce as the king of the cloud kings, but it increasingly feels like they're also trying to challenge Microsoft for total enterprise software supremacy. In terms of the stock, though, the completion of the Slack deal means that Salesforce will no longer be weighed down by these arbitrage guys. This transaction is a big stock component, and there's a whole industry of arbitrage funds that short the acquirer in these situations. I think that's the main reason why Salesforce is basically flat since the Slack deal was announced in early December. What's next? I think it goes higher. Let's check in with Mark Benioff. He's the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Salesforce to get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Benioff, welcome back to Man Money. Jim, hello from San Francisco. How are you? I am good. How about you? I'm doing great. It's great to see you, Jim. You're well, looking great. I thank you so much. You do too. Good to see you in a jacket. Good to see you in the office. Let me ask you, when you put this deal <laughs> Jim, together. It's the first what? time in 18 months that I've had a jacket on. This is crazy. Well, everybody's kind of a little more relaxed <laughs> except for me. I slept in a Brioni last night. It felt good. Okay, so here's the deal. 
You came up with this idea to do this deal during the pandemic. I think a lot of people felt that, well, I don't know, how's Slack really doing? But the truth is, is that ever since you decided to acquire them, Slack has been doing better and better and better during this whole period, correct? <laughs> Jim, you're exactly right. I mean, Slack is such an amazing company. You know, I've always loved Slack. I'm a huge user of Slack here at Salesforce. At the time we use Slack, Jim, Slack is incredible. It transforms the way we work. It's our new headquarters. It's where we're all working. And, you know, when we had that pandemic 18 months ago, well, it accelerated Slack. That was what was amazing because everyone was in Slack all the time. And we started to integrate Salesforce and Slack services. We could see that Salesforce was better with Slack. It was awesome. Well, I have to tell you, when I read the release today, uh, Arvind Krishna, a man you and I both respect greatly, felt, yeah. felt compelled to talk about, what, 380,000 employees that are now on Slack with you at Salesforce. I talked to him yesterday. He's so excited. You know, he's the CEO of IBM. He has 400,000 users of Slack. He also is a huge Salesforce customer because IBM runs sales and service and marketing and commerce and has built applications and done systems integration with MuleSoft. He's built a whole customer 360 with Salesforce. IBM is now able to deliver a single source of truth for all their customer data, Jim. But here's the cool thing. Now it's all within Slack. Within Slack, all that information, they can now collaborate and communicate and use channels and all these incredible Slack features to deliver really the next generation of their Salesforce experience. And that's inspired us that this is awesome. We just say to them, you know, thank you, IBM. Thank you, Slack, for showing us the future. Because when you add it to our customer 360, it makes everything so much better. Well, I worked in another company I started that also uses Salesforce, that also uses Slack. But I got to tell you, that company gave me a Hewlett Packard. And when I put the PC on now, after uh, I really started about a month ago, if I reboot it, up comes Teams. I, I didn't ask for Teams, but up come Teams. I have to get off of Teams to get to my Outlook, which I don't really want anyway. But let me ask you something. You know Slack in a 10Q filing last year said, furthermore, we could be subject to retaliatory or adverse measures by Microsoft, its employees or agents in response to the complaint that we filed with the European Commission. Doesn't that mean that you now could be subject to retaliation or adverse measures by Microsoft? <laughs> I loved how you said that. Anyway, Jim, here's the thing. You know, the most important thing is customer success, and nobody has more successful customers than Salesforce. You know, our job is to make our customers successful. It's all we focus on. Our industry has lots of players, lots of competitors. Everybody's out for everybody. You know, our industry is the hunger games of industries. But, <laughs> Jim, Salesforce and Slack together, when we talked about IBM, look at what Intuit is doing. You know that Salesforce already runs into its whole customer service operation, that whole idea that you can ask these incredible people questions inside Intuit and inside TurboTax, and they come up and give you these answers. And then their sales and their service and their marketing and their commerce and all of Intuit's customer 360 is all Salesforce, but Intuit is 100% Slack. So when you bring Slack and Salesforce together, Intuit is better. And that's what I'm excited about. That is what I am so excited about and so grateful well, to Stuart Butterfield for building this amazing company and amazing technology because it's made what I've been doing for the last 22 years, Salesforce, so much better. Now, you've seen us 
deliver that with Tableau. We bought Tableau right, a few years right. ago. People down at that, that market said it's too big, won't work. How did that come out? <laughs> Jim, that's the narrative. You know, whenever you buy something, you have to go through this gauntlet. The most important thing, I, my advice to other CEOs is very simple. Look, we're in a new re- reality, post-pandemic reality here. It's a post-pandemic reality where there's still a pandemic. Who would have thought? <laughs> but now, now it still means you have to reconceptualize your company. What are you doing to make your company better? And for Salesforce, number one, we've acquired Slack. We already had Tableau. We had MuleSoft. We had ExactTarget. We had a lot of amazing companies that we had deeply integrated and made our company much, much better for our customers. Mark, Mark, every company needs to do what we're doing, Jim. You know that. I have a question. There's every company. Did they need? Did everybody need to put up a 1,070 foot tower, 1.1 billion? In a period, Mark, where, frankly, you're putting a jacket on for the show and you're in the office, but you don't need to be. Jim, you're 100 percent right. I'm in the office. We have a lot of employees who are in the office who are vaccinated. You have to be vaccinated to come back to work for Salesforce. If you're attending our management conferences, you have to be vaccinated. But that means that we can do it safely, at least if you have an mRNA vaccine, evidently. But, Jim, here's the key thing. We are getting back to the new normal. We can see that. And the new normal means four things. A far larger percentage of our employees are going to work at home. It used to be 20 percent. It's probably 50 to 60 percent. People are still, like me, going to come into the office because, oh, I really like this table and talking to people and like the view. Three, we're going to have more off-sites and events. And I've been doing that. I've been running our company through a series of amazing off-sites since November. But I do it testing and vaccinations. And four is we're going to have this amazing Salesforce ranch where we're going to train people and unite our culture and bring our teams together. And these are the four elements of how Salesforce is going back to work. But I didn't that hear is Dreamforce. so exciting. I did not hear Dreamforce in the four elements. Dreamforce is an event, a major event, which you're going to come to, Jim, September 21st in San Francisco, New York, London, and Paris. Four simultaneous Dreamforces in person that week. And I hope you're going to. Jim, are you committing to be there? I'm committing to be there. Yes, absolutely. No, I just, I, blew off, there, I just blew off a major soda executive today who wanted to have dinner with me. I said, are you kidding me? Nobody schedules anything that week. Are you kidding me? He didn't understand. I taught him. Because he, he's an SAP client, by the way. He's an SAP. That's why he doesn't know. Now, one last question. Biden tech crackdown. Biden, I no, of course, Biden technology guys, they seem to be anti-tech to some degree. Would you please explain to people that they're not anti-tech? That's silly. Well, he's saying a lot of really smart things. And he, you know, he is saying some things that other people were afraid to say right. that are true things. So, look, we have to we have the crisis of prioritization in government. They've got to figure out what's truly important. And certainly our technology industry is one of the great assets of our country, of course, And we want to help all of our customers get back to growth and to reignite the economy, you know, and the government has to be a team as part of that. In fact, I just spoke to Gina Raimondo yesterday. You remember her, Jim? She's been on your show many times, former governor of uh, Rhode Island. She's now the secretary of commerce. And she's absolutely helping us really get our businesses going and back and happening to get and doing the things that are important. Like, Jim, we've got to get to net zero, not just to growth. Right. We've got to cut our emissions. We've got to get to our trillion trees. Remember that? Mm-hmm. You know, onekey.org. Jim, that's a huge part of the future. We've got to go green. There's so many important things that we need to do to make our world better and make our companies better. 
And, well, you know, our government's got to be a key part of doing that. You know that. OK, now, can we have single source of truth in a place like Robin Hood, where I know you got a lot of stock for the upcoming deal? And they probably need your help for single source because they've been they've had some issues with the government. And I really kind of feel like that they have not historically been a single source of truth. Well, Jim, you're right. I mean, Robinhood has always been a huge Salesforce customer, and that's how they run customer service. And I actually met Vlad through you. And the very first time I talked to him, I said, Vlad, what is your, you know, what's your number one value? What's your highest value? And Vlad he kind of worked through and he said, safety, actually. And I said, let's talk about how you're going to operationalize safety. And you probably, you'll know that day because he tweeted, safety is now our number one value. Right. And that really got me excited about Robinhood and really taking their company to another level. And I said, Vlad, I think Salesforce would love to invest and help you and not just make a, you a customer, but let's be a partner. We've done that with so many exciting companies like Zoom, right. for example, like and Snowflake, for example. Like you know, we run the largest and most successful venture capital fund in Silicon Valley, yeah. Salesforce Ventures. You know that, Jim. I and do. It's amazing. We can help and partner with tech companies. And, of course, I'm doing that on the side with, personally, I have time ventures. I love working with entrepreneurs. I love working with ecopreneurs. You know, those are entrepreneurs who are doing ecology. And, Jim, we've seen so many exciting things happen for these companies. And when I look at some of the amazing companies that have even come out of time ventures, like Upstart and Affirm. I like like those two guys. Airbnb. It's like, oh, my gosh, these are the people who are adding value in the world. Okay. And that's what I'm excited. So, yes, I love technology. I love innovation. I love entrepreneurship. But I'm going to help people get to a higher value because if trust is not your number one value, I want to work with you to try to help you get to that higher place. I believe that Robin Hood Get that stamp of approval with Salesforce. Great single source of truth. Congratulations on Slack. I will talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Jim, come to San Francisco. We love you. Absolutely. Isn't it great to see enthusiasm? Whatever happened to enthusiasm? How did that check out? Mark Benioff, chair, founder, CEO of Salesforce, on the closing of the Slack deal. Bad Money's back in. Just chill out. Is this Chill Master Jay? The chill man is in the house. He's happy. The lightning round is coming up. When Mad Money returns. It is time. It is time for the lightning round. What is that? And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski dead or lightning round? Just to know how it just ends. Yo, Kramer. Yo. Uh, Clover Health Investment. No, no. Why, why do you want to traffic in Clover? No, thank you. That's a two-leaf Clover. I don't like the business model, and there's a lot of better things to buy. United Health. Go buy United Health. Jill in Florida. Jill. Booah, Jim. Um, this is Jill. I'm, I'm calling about Nokia. They're making a comeback. Now, some of that could be our crackdown on the Chinese, but at $5.80, believe it or not, I've never said this on the show since 1998 when I didn't have a show, Nokia's a buy. Let's go to Kevin in my home state in New Jersey. I have a lot of home states. Kevin! Professor Kramer, booyah. Oh, I love For the Indiana Jones of the financial jungle. I need your help on this one. Stock symbol CLNE, clean energy Long-term, long-term spec, you know, periodically has those big lifts. You know, I... Look, Andrew Little, Little Fair means well. Uh, this one and, and a couple of others involving liquefied natural gas, I think, over what over time will succeed. I'm not done. That's nonsense. Joey in Tennessee. Joey. 
Hey, how you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Got a question about plug power. Okay. Jimmy Chill says during the first week of August, plug power report. And if they screw up, then I'm going to have to bring me the head of Andrew Arsh because they have got to put up good numbers. They have to. I mean, after what's happened, they must put up good numbers. Am I clear? They must put up good numbers. Can I go to Louie in Vermont, please, Louie? Hi, Jim. This is Louie. Um, I bought uh, Insego uh, uh, close to its high. I'm wondering whether I should uh, dump it or no, wait it I out. I don't know. I mean, Insego has, Dan Mondor has war- worn me out. That has been a series of broken dreams, that stock. And I'm done with the broken dream stocks. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, there's no reason to be alarmed. But can anyone on board fly a plane? Grammar pilots you through the market's friendly skies next. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. I think that's fascinating. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be a new feature here. Hit the loose, whatever. whatever no, it's too soupy sales-like. Is it? It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. The airlines are ready for takeoff. That's what we learned so far this earnings season. Just terrific numbers from United Airlines this morning. And, and that's before any real pickup in international flights. They're seeing no degradation from the new COVID variants. I bet we hear the same thing from the rest of the industry. By the end of the year, the airlines are going to be very profitable, as they were before the pandemic. Now that business is finally looking good, don't forget how we got here, please. When the pandemic hit last spring, we were looking at, at near certain bankruptcies not, if not just shutdowns, for not just United, but the entire airline industry, even the best of the best, Southwest Air, which I'll be talking to tomorrow on Squawk on the Street. With travel restrictions all over the world and no one wanting to fly for fear of catching COVID, it was a given that they couldn't survive on their own. Remember that? Do you remember when we thought planes were death traps? But you know what? It was also a given that they get bailed out, something that happens every 10 to 20 years, it seems. The Treasury Secretary at the time, Steve Mnuchin, knew that we couldn't let the airlines go down the drain. It's an essential industry that's being destroyed through no fault of its own. When I saw Scott Kirby, the CEO of United Airlines, talk positively about the numbers this morning with Phil LeBeau on CNBC, I decided I got to pick up the phone, call former Secretary Mnuchin, reminisce about those days. He pointed out that he was heavily criticized at the time for backstopping United to the tune of more than $7 billion. But you had to remember that there was no way the airlines could bridge the gap until we got a vaccine. And last spring, most people thought that would be years away. Mnuchin told me that without that first gigantic stimulus package, we would have had what he described as a global depression. Not to mention that it would have been a national security risk to let all the airlines go under. More importantly, the resurgence of the airlines is a quaint reminder that Mnuchin helped cobble together multi, multiple trillion dollar relief packages with bipartisan support in Congress. Bipartisan. He mused about how great it would be if both parties could find a way to work together like they did last spring. I don't think that's very likely because our system punishes politicians for working with the other side. But well, we have to remember how much the government did right during the crisis. I read today that Fed Chief Jay Powell's term is up in February, and the Wall Street Journal says he's not a lock. How, 
How the heck is that possible? Powell did more than anyone to save us from a global depression. Remember, the moment he said the Fed would buy the bonds of the troubled businesses, that put the floor under nearly every struggling publicly traded company except Hertz. And even Hertz managed to get through banks without wrecking its previous shareholders, which is insane. And the Federal Reserve didn't really have to put up any money at all. Powell made that statement when Carnival, the giant cruise line, was trading like it was about to go under. Once they got the Fed's implicit backstop, though, Carnival was able to raise capital by selling bonds, and that allowed them to stay afloat. Now they're talking about two-thirds of their ships going back to sea by the end of the year. And don't you think Boeing, which directly or indirectly supports 2 million workers, could have been the biggest casualty without government intervention? Again, though, the Treasury Department the Fed helped. OK, they didn't do it, but they helped raise an astounding $25 billion uh, for Boeing in April of last year, saving one of our biggest employers. Now, we couldn't have done it without Mnuchin and Powell. So as we look back on the first quarter where the airlines have fully lapped the pandemic, let's remember that the government can do great things when both parties are willing to work together. We don't expect much from our leaders in this country, but they really came through in the clutch a year ago. Maybe they can do it again. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. Now. 